Hello everyone, I'm Nathan Taylor and welcome to the On The Record podcast presented by The Western Weekender. On this podcast, we're joined by special guests who all have such great stories to tell about Penrith and the role they've played in our city. They are Penrith stories told by Penrith people. I'm hosting the podcast today because the tables have turned and the guest is the usual host and editor of The Western Weekender, Troy Dodds. Troy has been the editor of The Weekender for 12 years and has also worked across radio both locally and with 2UE and 2GB. Plus, there's a few things you might not know. I really hope you enjoy our chat. Troy, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here on the other side of the desk and uh, good to see you've figured out how to turn the air conditioning on in the <laughs> on the record studios as well. It's very warm in here. It is quite warm. Now, Troy, the question you always start things off with, where were you born and where did you grow up? I was actually born in Liverpool at uh, Liverpool Hospital in uh, southwestern Sydney. I uh, don't remember much about Liverpool though, because I uh, moved to Penrith uh, when I was about two years old. I think my parents had a had a uh, one of those fifty fifty decisions to make. I think it was either Campbelltown or Penrith, and uh, they chose uh, Penrith. So, yes, grew up in uh, Penrith in the late eighties, early nineteen nineties. Excellent. And tell us about your schooling. Now, what kind of student were you, and uh, is that where your media interest started, perhaps? Uh, well, yeah, it is, but it's a it's a pretty poor schooling story to be honest. I wasn't uh, I wasn't that good at school. I, I uh, in saying that, I, I, if if there was something that I was um, interested in, whether it was um, did IT for a while there and um, in English and whatnot, I was into it. But uh, I just was not a studier. I, I probably studied uh, the least of anyone that we'd all know uh, for the uh, HSC exams, to be honest, <laughs> because uh, it just wasn't my thing. And um, you know, yeah, just just my parents obviously had never been really through it before. Someone going through the HSC, so they probably didn't really know. Hey, should you be studying a bit more than he is or whatnot? Uh, they were both at work, and I was supposedly studying during the day. But uh, yeah, so probably not the best um, student. But um, in saying that, yeah, it is probably where the uh, the media interest came from. I can remember once. Uh, in English class with uh, Mr. Yakub at Jamison High School in, right, uh, yep. in year 11. Um, the assignment for the day was to, to put, put this uh, particular thing that we were writing in a newspaper format. Yep. And uh, I came in in the traditional classic newspaper format, headline, subheadline, big uh, masthead across the top, things done in columns and all of that, like it was a newspaper. No one else had done that. They kind of didn't grasp that. Yep. Um, you know, I was probably the only kid in year 11 who was buying the Daily Telegraph um, in the morning. <laughs> so uh, so I remember then there was a feeling, I guess, from um, from, from my English teacher then that um, I'd done something pretty good. And, and he actually said, you know, you should really follow this and whatnot. Um, but I'd always had the general interest. Um, I used to you know, when I was much younger, um, watch the six o'clock news, write down all the stories and then um, repeat it back into the mirror uh, a bit later on in the night. Right. So always had the media uh, interest around. And I know sure. you used to create your own shows as well, like with some family members. Is that right? You used to... Yeah, yeah. I always used to uh, basically have my own TV channel, uh, <laughs> channel channel six, uh, operating as a rival to seven <laughs> and nine. And I used to do the TV guides for it and everything like that. And yeah, my own shows and uh, things like that. So... Yeah, always had a bit of a, uh, a media interest, I guess. And what did your parents think about you, know, you having such an interest in media? Usually kids watch The Simpsons at 6pm, <laughs> but you were watching, you know, Ann Sanders and uh, whoever I was on yeah. uh, Channel 7 at the time. Ross Simons. He was, yes, he was yes, Ann well, and Ross. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, I think that they, it was probably a little bit unexpected for them in some ways in that, um, that there's no media person in the family, there's no history of media or, or anything like that. Uh, but they had a pretty strong interest in it. My dad in particular, um, you know, some of my earliest memories are 
driving to my grandma's house in school holidays and um, the, the the old Gloria theme song from the Alan yeah. Jones breakfast show would, uh, would ring out because that would be what Dad was listening to. So there was always a uh, yeah an affiliation, I guess, particularly with talk radio. That's kind of where it started. But um, I don't think that they had the highest of hopes uh, necessarily that I was going to follow a career like this one. Uh, post school, I did some work experience <laughs> at a uh, computer repair shop on okay. uh, on Bat Street. I think they thought that might have been where I was headed, mainly because I knew how to work the computer that they, you know, particularly <laughs> my dad would would struggle with. Um, that was not the best work experience uh, kid either. But um, but yeah, so uh, then I, I managed to get some work experience at uh, two UE in year eleven and twelve. Yep. Um, they put me on a, a gardening show that um, was actually probably one of their more popular uh, shows on a, right. on a Saturday and Sunday morning. So. A little bit of work experience there, and um, yeah, I did, actually did some stuff for their website, which they gave me all the access to these days. It'd be a much different <laughs> situation, but I don't, don't think people had considered that sort of thing. So yeah, I think they were pretty surprised in the end that, that it was the career that I followed. So was it all media that you enjoyed, or was it? Like, you just mentioned then you liked print, you did your own fake TV news channel, yeah. you, you loved radio. Was it just everything associated with media? Yeah, or? I think media was pretty much it. I never really had a view that I would be doing anything else. I mean, yeah, the computer repair thing, literally just because <laughs> I kind of knew my way around uh, a computer and the settings, and you know, I'm the pseudo IT guy at the Western Weekender as well. Yes, so, you, you are. Know, I, I, I kind of know all that sort of, you know, not not too deep into it, but um, so that's why I did work experience there at um, Advantage Computer Maintenance. Don't know if they're still around, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, did a terrible job there, to be honest. And uh, But yeah, that was probably the only other thing, really, other than that media. I, even as much as I fell into it, media would have been the only interest that I had in pursuing. And, and to me, when I was um, you know growing up, and I, I enjoyed a lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of sport media, so I'd read a lot of sport yep. articles and things like that. What about for you? I mean, I know you're, you're really you're a bit of a political junkie. You love all that sort of stuff, you, but you also love your sport as well. Was there a particular avenue that you you would particularly listen to or yeah uh, definitely sport and general news i can tell you politics wise i had zero interest and i'll be honest with you even when i went for the job here at the western weekender if i would have been asked who the state member for penrith was at that time <laughs> i would not have been able to answer right, the okay. question and i'm just lucky i, I wasn't because uh, bernard bratusa the previous editor who hired me here uh he would ask that question quite often and i later on have asked that question as well you do yes um i would not have had a clue i, I just had zero interest in politics but General news, um, and, and, and general news from a historical point of view as well. I'd, I have a great fascination in going back and watching how different um, tragedies or triumphs were, were covered. Okay. Uh, but yeah, definitely sport. Rugby league was it for me growing up. Um, I mentioned earlier I was the only kid who bought the Daily Telegraph, but I was also picking up Big League and Rugby League Week and, right. and whatever else, and that's probably what I was reading in, in maths class when I should have been... Uh, figuring out percentages and all that kind of stuff. But uh, no, Rugby League was where it really... You know, if I could have found a job, which I ultimately did, uh, that involved rugby league somehow and media, that was, I guess, the dream that was was being followed. Well, people that know you, Troy, obviously, they know you're a big rugby league fan. You, you write um, our rugby league content um, in the paper every week, and you have done for for many many years at yep. the paper. So, how did uh, how did the Panthers come into your life? I mean, we'll get to some of your career and stuff later, but um, the Panthers, obviously, you know, you mentioned rugby league. You, you bought big league magazines. Yep. You would have read the, the lift outs in the Telegraph. But um, Panthers, I mean, I have seen you some early photos of you in a Bulldogs jumper. But <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were burnt. But yeah, well, my mum, my mum's from, and my dad, I guess, originally too, uh, from that Bankstown area. My mum grew up in, uh, in Condal Park and my dad in uh, Bass Hill, so... Bulldogs territory, so right, my mum okay. in particular was a big Bulldogs fan, and she really only made the switch to be a Penrith fan to follow the local team here. 
um, as, right. as the Panthers. So I guess if she was to do what I would do to uh, my daughter, um, <laughs> I would have been a Bulldogs fan because, you know, there'll be there no, you, go. you know, my, my daughter will not be following any other. You, you wouldn't know, be very happy team. right now either if you're a Bulldogs fan too, by the no, way. No, well, that's right. I'd be, you know, I'd be very disappointed. But, um, yeah, so so she became a Panthers fan. We started going to games here, I guess, in the in the late 1980s. Um and that's just sort of how I fell in love with it. Um, originally, I'm sitting on the hill with them, um, and I used to—I was very into, you know, as most kids think of my vintage were into trading cards and yes, all yes. of that sort of stuff. So you'd, you'd wait after the the game and get your your card signed, and um, from from and it was the only opportunity, I guess, to see other teams as well. These days, I think there's a lot more. You know, you have appearances and you have a bit, probably a bit better access because right. of you know the way the world works now, but. Um, in those days, you know, if you wanted your Ricky Stewart gold card signed, we well, had to wait for Penrith to play Canberra and, and wait, and wait out uh, the dressing room there. So yeah, used to do all of that, and um, and then yeah, just started going with friends and whatnot. At one stage, I think there was about twelve of us who were who were all going to the footy during when I was in high school. Yep. Um, and very slowly that group dwindled down to, to pretty much just <laughs> me. I remember going by myself for a while there as well. So as other kids, I guess started on, oh, I'm going to do something else or or, or whatnot. I, I just stuck with them. I just fell in love with it and. Um, yeah, I can't really remember the... I mean, I, I remember it, but I can't remember in any great detail the 1991 yeah. grand final. But, um, yeah, sticking with it during the 90s, uh, there was something about... Just just like recently, in the lead-up to the Premiership in, in 2021, there was something about sticking with it in the 90s that I liked, even though uh, the team was struggling. There were some lean years, and that's probably why a lot of maybe your mates sort of yes. dropped off over the years sure. and, and maybe stopped following the sport or went to other teams. But... Um, you actually had a few interactions with some players. You mentioned not yep. just, uh, you know, waiting outside the dressing sheds after games, but I know that uh, a couple of them visited you in hospital when you were a kid because you broke your leg. Yeah, when I was 12 years old, I um, I can't even remember the, the actual street now. It's in uh, it's in Jamison Town. Uh, oh, Romsley, Romsley Street, I think it is, Romsley Road. I'm um, in Jamison Town there, and um, there's a bit of a hill that goes down, and I was there with a, with a mate of mine just riding the bikes down the hill. As you do, and um, there was a car that it, it sounds stupid when I tell people I crashed into a parked car because that's not <laughs> quite the story. Uh, I was coming down the hill. This car comes to the intersection, and I'm like, for some reason in my mind, I'm like, this car's still going to go. He's not going to wait for me. So what I'll do is I'll just gl- casually glide around the corner um, instead of going straight down because he's going to come out and he might hit me. Yeah. Um, he obviously, and now I think about it, I go, why would I think that? Because he obviously <laughs> saw me coming, and he just. He stayed there. He yep. stayed there waiting for me to come past. And I've just like, just casually just smashed right into the side of his car, <laughs> went right over the top of it, somersaulted over the top of it, landed on my head. Um, helmet? And, and yeah, had a helmet oh. on. In fact, you know, was told constantly from the ambos on the side and, and in hospital that without the helmet, you know, well, we certainly wouldn't be recording this uh, today. Broke my leg. Um, I remember sitting there actually and thinking, oh, if I'll just stand up in a minute and I probably won't tell my mum and dad about this because this just limp this home somehow. No, just limp home. <laughs> that certainly wasn't going to happen. And um, I can remember, it's funny, you know, and I'm sure people have been through this sort of experience. I can remember screaming, but I can't remember being in pain. Right. So I guess I was sort of knocked out, but I can remember my, my screams, but I cannot remember or feel the pain or anything like that. Uh, but I ended up in hospital for six months. Um, six months? Because the, first of all, the leg was, was broken quite high up, so... There was kind of no way I could do the traditional cast thing, so I was in traction there for three months, and then two doctors came along, and uh, I was being seen by two doctors. I remember both their names too, but I won't name them. Um, they were having a debate. Yeah, I think this this leg is ready to um, to come out. Okay. The other one, nah, I don't think it is. <laughs> Somehow we ended up going with the guy who thought it was good, 
and it wasn't, and it rebroke um, oh. on the uh, the exit out of it. So I ended up redoing it and spent another three months. I had in, to do the uh, stint again. And yes, as part of that, uh, Greg Alexander, Steve Carter, uh, both came and, and visited me in in uh, Nepean Hospital. Um, I know Brandy, you know, pretty well these days. I've never actually mentioned it to him, right. but, um, but I should give it a mention because uh, yeah, it was it was great for for me, you know. Best experience ever as a, as a kid for them. I remember when I saw I could see them coming into the hospital, and I was like, "Oh, these guys are, are um, <laughs> you know, just doing a general tour." Yeah. And then they came straight to me, and uh, TV cameras were there. The ABC uh, filmed it for a for a, you you know, their halftime show for I think Penrith were playing Manly that weekend. <laughs> Uh, I think they said, I oh, will win for you on the weekend. We've got big 40 or something <laughs> like that. But uh, good experience. And, and these, I always remember that when I think sometimes, you know, I'm watching the ends of games. And I'm like, why is this kid getting a photo? Or why yeah, is this bloke yeah. getting a photo with this player? Like, just that stuff. And, and you're in the same boat. Yes. You know, we we kind of see these players on a much more regular basis these days doing this job. But I remember back to that, and I'm thinking that was just a, a true highlight. It's not something that you get to see every day, so yeah, it was good fun. And obviously, um, you know, obviously you remain close with with the Panthers during that time, and you, you guess your obsession has even grown and grown over the years. But um, in, in the late 1990s, the, the internet was sort of taking off, wasn't it? We didn't have mm. Facebook or or Twitter or anything no. at the time, but you know, the websites were bubbling out around there, but. Um, you being a, a, a computer geek, I guess you could say, and you know you had a bit of a, a affiliation with working at computer stores. You decide to to launch a, a website or two, actually two yeah. websites. Yes. Um, you know, how did that come about? Because the internet was very complicated back then. I mean, yeah. these days websites are you know a little bit easier to make with templates and things. But um, yep. tell me about that. Yeah, this is where it all started, I guess. As far as if, if you want to pinpoint where does a media career begin, this is probably it. Um, so, uh, yeah, I look, to be honest with you, I have no idea how I figured it out on my own. I was, most things computer-wise self-taught, and I still, uh, there's a lot I don't know, but um, somehow I figured it out. I used Microsoft Front Page, I remember that. Right. Um, it was an old sort of what you see is what you get website editor. And yes, my first website I created was a, was a Tina Arena fan page. Okay. Um, you know, just, just so you know, Tina was very big at this time, right? Late so 1990s, Australia. Is, yeah, late yes. 90s, Don't Ask in Deep, the big two albums, you know. So, I was, you know, a Tina Arena website was fair enough. Uh, but then I started a, a rugby league website called uh, leagueaustralia.com. Okay. And it would just have news and whatever else, and it's just me running. So I, I presume I stole the content from other places. <laughs> I mean, those days, you know, I'm... I had zero idea about the things that we deal with today. Well, that's what people is, do today, don't they? A lot of those uh, <laughs> blogs out there, still a bit of content. Do, but, but in the <laughs> official sense these days, we're obviously very conscious of copyright right. and all those sort of things. But back then, yeah, you know, you just took this and then the team list had come out and I put that up and we started doing live scores, which back then was not something that was, was all that common. In fact, not even every game was broadcast um, live. You know, you'd have your Channel 9 game, would be on at 8.30 and kick yeah. off at 7.30 and... Uh, same on Sundays and whatever else. But somehow, from listening to radio stations or whatever else, I'd, I'd do these live scores and the page would refresh every 30 seconds. And the website started to build itself a little reputation that it was you know, it was going okay. And around this is the time where South Sydney were fighting to get back into the competition after being kicked out. And they were, we were waiting on that sort of final big court decision, which ultimately, well, it didn't really let them back in the comp, but it paved the way for the NRL to say, all right, like, we, we accept that this is yeah. this needs to happen. And so my parents let me have the day off school because I need to cover it for, <laughs> for, for League <laughs> Australia.com. Australia. And, I, was, I, you know, and I remember my dad calling because he'd just heard on 2UE that, you know, it's in the Rabbitohs' favour and, you know, and I wrote it all up. And yep. anyway, we got it out there really quickly and... Um, 
there was another website running at the time called ozleague.com. And ozleague.com was pretty big because it ran oztips.com, which at that time was the mega tipping kind of website right. that businesses would use and integrate their tipping. And ozleague.com was going pretty good. It was the dot-com kind of era where things were going pretty good in that world. And they said, well, we'll buy leagueaustralia.com from you for a dollar and we'll give you a, uh, a job at ausleague.com, um, which I obviously accepted. Now, this is a couple of weeks before finishing school, so whatever path, I was probably in a deluded mind that I was going to go do journalism at, at uni, but I yeah. don't think I would have had the the, the, uh, the uh, score to get in there. So literally, I finished, I think, my last exam on a Wednesday, and I started at ausleague.com on the Monday. They shut leagueaustralia.com, which I expected them to do, and I worked at ausleague.com, and... Um, Got $25,000 a year. I remember that. I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. I had to yeah. go to North Sydney, though, every uh, every day, five days a week. Wow. And um, Just get the train in? Yeah, just got the train in there. So um, what happened over the next three years, I guess, though, working at Ausleague and a couple of other places, uh, Sports Data, the only place I've ever been fired from, uh, and a couple of other places, is that I did my three years, I guess, on the on the tools versus someone at uni who was, you know, obviously studying. And... Definitely have a lot of respect for the uni system, but what it meant was in the at the end of that three years when I was trying to get jobs and whatnot, I was the guy who was able to say, "Hey, yes, I don't have the uni degree, but I've got the experience." Right, yep. I'm up against people who go, "Hey, I don't have the experience, but I've got the degree," um, you know. And so it was a. I, I think I matched what they were offering by the fact that I'd had the experience. That was just the path I happened to take. These days, when we have a new journalist starting with us, it's fifty-fifty. You know the. You know, I'm more than happy to, to look at uni grads, but we look at the others as well, probably because I remember from, from that time, from that, time uh, that I was yeah. doing it. So, yeah, it all started with a, an amateur website in my uh, spare and, room at home. And how did you, because um, you would have been look, in high school at the time, yep. producing this website, how did um, how did you go with the hits? Like, how did you get the word out there? There's no Facebook, there's no Twitter no. to promote it. Like, how did people find out about League Australia and sort of yeah, go so, to youth as the source for... Back footy in, information. Well, back in those days, there was a few ways. Firstly, uh, links were so important. So back in, you remember when you went to a website, you'd click links, and yep. they all had links. So you'd have to contact the other rugby league websites. Rleague.com was the, you know, the, the mammoth website at the time. Right. So you go to rleague.com, and oh, you put me, you know, on there, and you would, and they would do that, and um, yeah, and then I contacted uh, League Week. By then, it was League Week, not Rugby League Week. And I think it went back to Rugby League Week. But League Week, Big League, all had little sections where they'd profile a website. Okay. And, and I managed to get in there a couple of times. Um, so, yeah, you just found ways to do it. And then um, radio as well, continuous call team, places like that. You'd, you'd ask for a plug. And, and and they would give you a this plug? This was so new to them that, they, yeah, we'll give this guy a plug. Why not? <laughs> um, so I remember getting a couple of plugs on, um, on continuous call as well. And, um, yeah, it was just a... An interesting experience, but a really interesting time to learn on the ground, given I'd never done this before. Yeah. I remember doing a story, I covered the story for, I think it was Ausleague at the time, when when 2UE lost the NRL rights, and um, I sent an email inquiry to uh, Ray Hadley. And um, I said, oh, look, you know, just wondering if you've got any comments or, or whatnot, and, and Ray rang. And that was my first time where someone rang me, and I'm like, well, this is someone who I've listened to yeah. you know, my whole time. And I didn't believe it was him. It was one of those classic stories where people say, I didn't believe it was, you know, he goes, that's Ray Hadley here. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, okay. And he starts talking away and I'm like, 
grab this Israel Adley, you know, and I would quickly, you know, get out and, and get write your pen it. out. But, yeah. yeah. So because I had no idea how this industry worked, I had zero, and that's the thing that uni, I guess, does teach you that you know you have to learn on the ground. Otherwise, no idea how this worked. No idea that I sent an email and he's going to call me and am I? These are quotes that I can take. Like, yeah. you know, the big learning experience for sure. So obviously, you just mentioned there in two thousand and one, you you leave Jamison High and um, you end up working for Oz League uh, yep. there. So was that a full time gig? Yeah, that was full-time, so I worked um, on Thursdays off so I could cover the games. Um, they got me a, uh, a Foxtel subscription, and, um, you know, that was, yeah, I'd right, cover the okay. games on the weekend and things like that. But, so would uh, you actually go to the games as well, or you just sit in your room and uh, watch, there watch were, Foxtel? Yeah, look, when I went to Sports Data, I mentioned before I got um, managed to get fired, uh, when I went to Sports Data, th- that was the expectation, that they were thinking that I would go to games. I'm yeah. like, well, for Osley, I just got to cover these games off the TV. Yeah, and right. like, no, no, you need to go to the press conference after and, and all this. And as I said, I'm learning all of this on the run. So it wasn't like today where we can watch the press conferences like, like we know there's press conferences. Like, I didn't even know there was a press conference yeah, okay. you know, after yeah. the game. So um, I remember, you know, a couple of reasons I got fired from there were kind of related to that. Number one... I wasn't going to the games, and I was, you know, I'm a 21-year-old, 19-year-old guy who wants to go to Panthers, you know, and, yeah. and, and all of this sort of stuff, so I'd, you know, I'd cover the game, and I'd quickly go, to, I'd just go to Panthers, I'd go out with friends at Panthers, and then the next day they'd be like, oh, you know that, you know, Cliff Lyons got injured last night, and <laughs> you didn't cover it, and I'm like, oh, I didn't know, like, you know, and, um, and I was involved in, um, yeah, like, the, t- the typical thing that would... Um, would interfere with a with a 19, 20 year old guy was had a girlfriend and then didn't have a guy. It was all all over the place. Yeah. And I was letting that distract me. And so <laughs> David Middleton, who's the stats guru who yeah. ran Sports Data, made the call. And Dave, if you're listening, I probably agree it was the right call to make. <laughs> it, was, it was time for us to part ways. Um, so what ended up happening after your parting ways with with, with the Sports Data? How did how, where did your sort of career path take you after that? Well, yeah, in two separate ways uh, because I did start um, a theatre website. Uh, talking of starting theatre websites, and by this time things have changed a little bit in the in the um, internet realm. Internet is getting bigger. Internet's and... getting bigger, and and I had a friend who was wanting to audition for a show, and I said, "Oh, look it up online. I'll find the details." I couldn't find the details of this show anywhere, so then I started to realise this industry doesn't have an actual you know website, like a news website that drives its content. It, it still is doing the classic, trying to get stories into papers, trying to, and all that sort of stuff. Yep. And I'm talking everything from your big musicals that are, that are obviously on in the in the city and whatnot, right down to sort of, you know, your B grade and your, what, what in America would be called off-Broadway, things like that. So I said, I'll oh, just do it. I, I don't know nothing about this industry. Um, so you weren't a, a musical goer as, nah, as nah, growing I I, up? That's... I think I saw Joseph in his amazing Technicolor <laughs> Dreamcoat, but no, um, but no, nah, nah, not at all. Um, wow, okay. And I, so I had zilch idea about this industry. Yeah. And I said, I'll just do it. And I said, you know what I'll do? I'll make it tabloid style, as in we're going to be gossipy and okay. we're going to be like, we're going to break stories. And this shocked the theatre industry in a way because they had not dealt with this before. So, for example, let's say uh, a show's coming out and they're going to announce who the lead in the show is. Traditionally, oh yeah, we'll put a press release out. We'll have a big announcement. No one's going to care about breaking this story, so we'll get every we'll, we'll control it the way we want to control yeah. it. Well, obviously, as the website started to grow, I would get leaks and things like that. So we just oh well, this person's cast will leak it, and it just it, it totally frazzled PR people who were not used to dealing with this. They were not used to dealing with stories being leaked and things like that. But there was a craving for it, both from within the industry itself, which loves gossiping about itself. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> 
excuse me, and uh, and also uh, from the you know core theatre supporters and and followers who didn't really have anything like that before. So. Got myself in a lot of trouble because we would break stories. There was feuds <laughs> everywhere. There was things like that, but there was also a recognition that this site was really taking off. And and probably over the next for the next decade, we were the Aussie Theatre was the premier theatre news source in the country, like without question. So, um, but it was a busy time because a, show, a new show would generally open every Thursday night, whether it's a, a major musical or a, or a play. And I often took on a lot of those myself yep. to go and review. We built a good team. Uh, in a state team as well, mainly of volunteer writers and things like that, because it, it did make a little bit of money, but not a lot. Uh, but yeah, it it dominated life for the next sort of you know five to ten years. Very uh, very popular. Surprised at how popular it became. I look back on some of that content now and go, how didn't my lack of knowledge about the history of this business not get caught along the way? Because some of the stuff I write, I'm like, what are you doing? You know, but. The whole point was to give theatre something it hadn't had. So a, a, a totally weird um, concept for them, which was, yeah, a site that actually broke stories and actually gossiped about them and actually did hard-hitting stuff that they weren't used to, to seeing and doing. Um, but also offering them a, a new way of promoting their shows, which mm. they didn't have before. So, yeah, an interesting ride. And at the same time, I was needed to make money. So, yeah, got my first print job around this time, which was at the uh, Blacktown City Guardian newspaper. Well, are they still around now, Troy? They're or? not now, no. I don't think the Guardian's around. So I was the um, uh, I'm a bit of an all-rounder, I think, there. I did entertainment, did the entertainment round. Okay. So what was happening there at the uh, Blacktown Did you Workers focus a lot of theatre productions in that thing? Or yeah, did you yeah, that well, to, yeah. Well, this is the first. I guess, you know, what I could always say is I've always managed to cross a lot of my interests over and make, right. make them about work. You yeah. know, I mentioned rugby league. Well, you know, rugby league is a big part of what the weekender does. And yes, at the time I was doing Aussie theatre, so I was able to, um, you know, to put some theatre stuff into into Blacktown City Guardian as well. Um, it was a, a funny newspaper in that it, it ran as like a classic local newspaper. Only one computer had the internet. Okay. So you, right. you, you had a computer, obviously, to write your stories, but if you needed the internet, you had to go... So like at the library or at school, <laughs> yeah, you have to wait your turn yeah, to get yeah. onto the, the computer. You yeah. have to wait your turn. And here I was at this time trying to run Aussie Theatre as well, so I'd be like, I need to check my Aussie Theatre. You didn't have email on your phone no or anything, or anything, or anything like, like that. Like no Wi-Fi, none of that. If you wanted to, In those days, if you wanted to say to staff, look, you can't look at social media too easy like yep. you know you could either block it on the computers or you know there was no wi-fi to just do it yourself on your phone so yeah you had to wait your turn and i was trying to run aussie theater at the same time so i'd log into my aussie theater email and <laughs> upload a story and, and all of this sort of stuff while at the same time yeah writing my blacktown stuff um i we were big on food story as we are now because we know food stories rate so yep. well for for online but for print we're big on food stories i'd have to go and do a restaurant review every week in blacktown right okay um, i tell you what i don't know if it's an indian restaurant on main street blacktown <laughs> one of the great indian restaurants. <laughs> yes we know that that's a separate podcast Troy. Yeah, yeah, choice yeah. favorite <laughs> favorite indian restaurants that'll but, come um, up in another episode but yeah it was a good time it was a good time and that was kind of my first introduction to the uh the weekender as well because it had a um an affiliation with the uh, the blacktown guardian so yep. that's where my sort of First foray with the weekend began really. So, so to put a bow on Aussie theatre, um, that obviously ran for, for quite a long time, yep. and, and since, St- still runs today, yeah. and, and still runs today. Yeah. But where did sort of did you sort of um, you know end your affiliation with that? Um, uh, so I reckon that was about 2011, 2012, somewhere in there, uh, where it was just becoming pretty apparent that it was it was too time consuming to do. Yep. So at the time, and I'm sure we'll go back and talk about it. I was doing radio here in Penrith. Um, I was starting to work uh, with the newspaper as well, 
and just going out every Thursday night to do the shows and keeping the sites up to date, just just couldn't do it. I could probably do it now yep. uh, because, you know, things are so much quicker these days with being able to update websites yeah. and, and whatnot. But um, I remember you used to have to, if I had to update the site, then I would have to save a copy of the page on the computer and then make sure I updated it when I got back home because it wasn't WordPress yeah, right, like that these yeah. days. So it was just so time-consuming. So I had a deputy editor at the time, um, and she she ended up buying the website, and, okay. and she's recently sold it as well. So it's probably been online, I think, in, in 2023. Next year, it'll celebrate 20 years um, online. But it is very different today. It, along the way, it lost its, um, its tabloid, its tabloid right. style, um, which I think was its driving force. Yeah. But perhaps these days, with social media and whatnot, um, it's time to be tabloid was back then and, and not now. So. Right. So yeah. you mentioned um, you work with the with the Blacktown Guardian and yep. you said they had an affiliation with The Weekender. So how did that sort of cross over where you went from there in Blacktown to being based here in Penrith with The Weekender? Yeah, basically The Weekender did the production for, um, for the Blacktown City Guardian. So because I lived in Penrith, um, the idea was, well, we need to get the files to Penrith to print. And because right. we only had one computer um, that was probably <laughs> operating on, you know, a, a really poor connection, I would literally get this bag, this massive bag, yep. and it would have all the proofs in it and some CDs, I'm thinking it, and that was how we got the, really? the content from... And like, I feel like we're talking about 1970. This yeah, is not the, that long ago. This is ago. the mid-2000s, yeah. you know, but... But, you know, there wasn't a system in place, I guess, that, that we were a bit behind in that regard, or the Guardian was anyway. The systems just weren't in place. So, literally, I would drive it here to the weekender, drop them off in the afternoon and pick them up, things up again the next morning and then, then go to Blacktown. And then, yeah, I, I ended up uh, here at the Weekender. The uh, the editor, Bernard Bratusa, was looking for someone to fill a, a job. So along I came and um, and it was the first of, I guess, three separate stints with the Weekender. But at that time, yeah, I did uh, uh, entertainment, a bit of sport and um, other bits and pieces and rugby league previews and uh, and things like that. So. So you would have been, what, your early 20s at the time? Yeah, I'm in the early 20s at that stage, yeah. And then, uh, obviously, in 2008, uh, you joined Kick FM, which was was Penrith's local radio station at the time. We've had a few stations here in town then. (laughs) And uh, you were the drive announcer. So uh, how did that come about? Because obviously you had that big love affair for radio growing up, but how did you sort of get back into that whilst at the same time doing your thing with The Weekender? Yeah, so... uh the weekend uh, owned Kick FM uh, in 2007. It, it launched Kick FM um, on the 87.6 frequency, and the weekend didn't really have any involvement with it per se. Um, it launched with uh, Jason Bowman and Amanda Flynn were, were hosting the breakfast show. Yep. Uh, Kerry Denton, really experienced radio guy, was doing mornings. David Archer was doing uh, drives. All experienced radio people from the Penrith area at yeah, the time. Yeah, yep. from the Penrith area. Somehow things blew up. I'm guessing maybe there was a bit of an overarch in um, in budget for that for the for what was a local radio station, and all of a sudden this whole on air team was kicked out one day, <laughs> and and the, the call went out. Well, we think we're gonna we're gonna do it all from in house through through the weekender. So obviously, I can't remember who approached who. If I said no, I'll do it, or they said, do you want to do it? But um, but I was super keen to to do it, obviously, and so I got handed the drive show from uh, from two till seven and. Uh, I, I, sometimes I listen back to it and, and I'm not trying to blow so I, I go you know what that, it's not that bad you know because yeah. I'd had so much experience in listening to say talk radio and things like that that I kind of knew a fair bit about how it operated and, and whatnot. and uh, yeah so we did 2 till 7 playing music doing interviews we had everyone from the, the premiers online Barry O'Farrell I remember right. came online we talked to Mick Leary who was a CEO of Panthers at the time and um, yeah hosted that for a uh, 
for a little over a year before, um, or maybe even two years before things went uh, went belly up. But uh, yeah, it was a great time. Um, Kick operated by the seat of its pants, but also, you know, skirting the lines of what was allowed and wasn't allowed. And we yeah. didn't know this. As, as on-air announcers, I had no idea what we were allowed to do or what we weren't allowed to do because they were quite happy just to no, do everything that you want to do. But I think we, um, as far as what was a narrow cast license, I think we uh, we bent the rules a fair bit, but, um, you know, I just did what I was told to do and hosted <laughs> the show and called an NRL game or two from the stands that we weren't allowed to do. And... How did that come about? Because obviously these days, it's, it's, it's obviously a very strict thing. You yeah, don't have the rights yeah. to the NRL. You shouldn't be calling them. So well, I won't, <laughs> how does I won't... Kick FM... <laughs> Start calling it an NRL game. Yeah, without the rights, um, <laughs> the call goes to me and says, you know what, we, we want to start calling the Panthers games. And I'm smart enough at this point to know, yeah, I think you kind of need some official rights to do this. I mean, like, So you knew the rules. Well, I at least knew that five or six years earlier, you know, the whole 2GB, 2UE debacle had happened. Yeah. And by this stage, I think we're in the world where Triple M's calling Monday Night Footy. So, you know, things like I kind of knew where things are supposed to be at. And they're like, no, no, we want you to call it. Just call it from the stands on a, on a phone. So I turn up at Shark Park. With your Nokia? And yeah, probably with an old... I don't know how it lasted, to be honest. I turn up at Shark Park and I find a seat and, um, yeah, I, I basically call the game. Binoculars? Uh, or? No, no. Just those days I had pretty good eyesight, I think. <laughs> okay. And called the game. And um, it was so bad. And they said, this is good because we think if it's bad, the NRL won't really notice. You know, like, just let, let it happen. And I can remember, I remember that uh, I was with some... I can't even remember who it was who came with me and they were like, buy me a drink here and you know and whatever else so I could you know <laughs> keep calling and they came back and said God, Troy, no more hot dogs left and like I made a big deal of that for the next few minutes on the broadcast where they're out of hot dogs here at Shark Park and all of this and um did that a couple of times and then I don't know if the NRL maybe got wind of it or whatever else but yeah. it turned into updates uh these right. updates would go for five or ten minutes um um, I did them for a long time. Michael Todd, who's now the uh, CEO of One Point Health, was also the NRL updater at one point. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was, a, it was a weird time, a great time. I loved it. I loved, you know, you'd rock into work here at, at 12 or 1 o'clock and, um, and do the drive show. And um, I drove around in the Kick FM car and um, really enjoyed it at the time. But looking back on it, there was no chance it was a long-term survival for Kick FM because it, um, yeah, it just wasn't set up to succeed, unfortunately. Yeah. So how, how did that all end? Because, um, you know, Penrith, you know, it loves radio and that sort of thing, but yeah. this seemed to be a, quite a big popular station at the time covering local stories and local people, but how did this all sort of fizzle out in the end? Yeah, so one day we look at the back page of the Daily Telegraph and the Sydney Spirit basketball team has collapsed. And uh, this was important to Sydney Spirit. And this was important to us. Um, This was the old Western Sydney Razorbacks. They become the Spirit. Yep, okay. Um, during this time, I think the Kings maybe disappeared as well. And yeah, so this, you know, the NBL went through a bit of a, yeah. bit of a turmoil during that period. Well, yep. oddly enough, the Weekender owned the Sydney Spirit really? basketball so team. So did you play so, for them as well? <laughs> no, I didn't play for them, but some of the guys had come in to the uh, Weekender office to make some uh, membership phone calls. So they'd ring the... the like it was, a, yeah, it was a fu- an interesting, interesting operation, yeah. And um, so, yes, think about this. You've got a media organisation that is running a newspaper, a radio station and a basketball team. <laughs> the basketball team collapses, and I guess, you know, to be honest with you, I still don't know the, the ins and outs of, of whatever else, but the best right. way to explain it is that the radio station and the newspaper were collateral damage for the collapse of that basketball team, which left a lot, a lot of debt behind it. Um, and there's a whole bunch of stories that I won't yeah. go into around yeah. that time, but, um, but basically... 
it meant that the radio station was gone. And, um, and, and ultimately, I think the license was sold to, to Wayne Wilmington. Um, who ultimately started Vintage FM. So at that point, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll stick around and I'll get to do what I'm doing now on, on Vintage FM. Also, at the same time, the Weekender was caught up in all of this. So yeah. it, it was purchased as well by a, a group within Penrith. Um, six, seven business people, as well as our printers at, at Spot Press, all sort of chipped in and, and bought it. So I kind of had two situations emerging. We're like, oh, hopefully I'll stay here at, at Vintage, but maybe something's happening at the Weekender. Wilmo gave me the call. I remember I was uh, in Meyer in Penrith and I took the phone call and um, Wilmo said, you know, long and the short of it is, you know, you're not sticking around hosting the drive show here. So um, that was all, all good. You know, I, I didn't necessarily, um, wasn't pinning all of my hopes on that. Yep. Uh, Wilmo had other plans and um, and uh, for Vintage and Vintage obviously took off over the next few years. Um, the opportunity came up for me to, to basically return to the Weekender and become its editor. At that point, I guess I'm 25. This is, you know, 2010, something like that. Yeah. Um, no, even younger, probably. Uh, now, Bernard Bratusa was the editor at the time. They, originally Bernard was going. He wasn't, there was a lot of mystery over what was happening there. Yep. Uh, so I had some some tough calls to make as well, because I obviously knew and got on with Bernard really, really well, but the opportunity was presented to me. Uh, so yeah, started as the acting editor. Um, became the editor and the rest is history, I guess. But it was a, a tumultuous time because the weekend it was, you know, for a while there, the weekend it wasn't running, it was running as the weekly view. Right. Um, and all of the staff of the actual Western Weekender, which was in receivership at the time, given the um, the collapse and everything like that, all of the staff resigned and just happened to join the weekly view, uh, which, which kept running with the same staff uh, because there was some issues in getting the masthead and whatever else. About eight or nine weeks in, masthead secured, and uh, the weekend returned Return. uh, with with all of that staff. So, yeah. so around around twenty five years old, you you become the the editor of the Western Weekender. Now that, yep. that that's quite young when we think about it yes. now. Like to be to be the editor of such a such an iconic and big paper in Penrith and in Western Sydney. Um, were you prepared for for, for taking that on? Um, Look, yes and no. Um, I, I was pretty confident based on the radio station I'd been able to build up a lot of uh, contacts and things like that and based on the paper's reputation itself and based on the fact that I'd worked at the paper before. So I knew the systems and how they operated. I knew a lot of the staff. Um, so it was it, it was difficult and I re- there, there were times when I probably didn't know exactly what I was doing and again, had to learn on the run that side of it now, the business side of it more than, more than anything else. Um, and very much learnt during that time to just adapt to how things are happening because everything was changing and uh, we went through some ownership changes and bits and pieces yeah. and all of this sort of stuff. But um, yeah, it was a, it was probably a difficult time, but one that allowed me to go, well, where, where do we go with The Weekender? And, and journos had often talked about wanting The Weekender. At that time, The Weekender was still the good news newspaper. Right. It, you know, nothing bad happened in Penrith was the philosophy. Um, and, and I think we'd We'd moved on. We needed to move on from that, and I, um, I made the call. I said we need to become true local newspaper. There's, you know, unfortunately there is bad stuff that happens around here as well, and so began the, I guess, the ride of, of taking the weekender from the number three paper in town to to number one. And obviously during that time, media, um, the technology in media was, was changing rapidly as yep. well. I mean, 
Facebook and in, in, in Twitter and Instagram and all those social media things were starting to take off. The Weekender website was also probably yep. starting to bubble away and getting better and, and bigger as well. So how did you sort of go from being a, a print newspaper to sort of, um, hmm. you know, adapting to these these newer methods of getting the word out and getting the news out, I guess? Well, we used to update the website once a week. Once a on week. A, on a Thursday with the three best stories of the week we'd come oh, up wow, with. Okay. And, and that's the way we'd do it. And uh, But yeah, now eventually we obviously launched a, a news website. We launched the socials. And the interesting thing about Facebook, I think, was that... that you know, we, we jumped onto that pretty early, but the weekender would just basically grab thousands of followers every time there was a storm or every time, yep. um, you know, things like that were happening because I was, I was just so entrenched in it. I was my now wife was working at the Sydney Morning Herald and she was working a night shift. Right. So she'd work from four till midnight. So I didn't really have anything to do at night. So I would just I'd still stay at work or I'd do whatever else and literally. If there was a head-to-tail, nose-to-tail accident on the corner of, you know, Abel Street and, and Regionville Road, I was onto it. And, yep. you know, we were going everywhere. So we – and we still do that. But we built a very strong reputation at that time that, hey, the weekend is Facebook is where you need to go if there's a – you know, if there's something happening and you want to know what it is. And then, yeah, over time, we start saying, well, actually, you know, print and digital, it's not about them fighting against each other. It's about that we can make them, um, you know, live live together and, uh, and yeah, so – we basically run not only the print edition, but then the full news website as well. Yeah, and I, I will touch on on the fact that um, you know since you've been editor of the Western Week, and I know we, we've had um, you know it, it's always been known as a, as a Penrith Panthers paper, and we always yes. uh, have a heavy rugby league coverage. But but since you've obviously been in charge, that's obviously expanded over the years with with contacts at at, at the at the club and things like that. And now we produce a sixteen page. Uh, rugby league magazine yep. every week during the season. Um, so that must be a great way for you to go back to your, your passions and be able to, to write about Panthers and rugby league every week and similar to what you were doing, you know, as you broke yeah, into the yeah, industry. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the, the thing about The Weekender is it, is it has constantly had the reputation of being the, the rugby league paper in um, in Penrith. Its first edition in 1991 had, you know, John Cartwright on the, did, on yeah. the cover uh, saying, saying this is the year and it turned out that it was. Um but yeah, we we actually had a fractured relationship when I when I took over as editor at the Weekender. There was a very fractured relationship as far as the Panthers and the Weekender is concerned. That was dating back to the Weekender's coverage of the Roger Cowan dramas, yep. um, you know, and the inquiry, the the government inquiry into the club, and the Weekender probably taking the the anti Panthers um, approach during that time. There was all sorts of dramas. The club wouldn't let us sponsor them, and, yep. and all sorts of things. So we had to rebuild the relationships. Uh, so that was my first couple of years were really all about that. They weren't necessarily about getting um, you know better access or coverage or whatever else. The weekender had always maintained its coverage during that time of, of Panthers, even during those bad times when access was. They would was still not do game and reports. And, still do, you yeah. know, Mick Kelly, a former player, actually used to used to write the match previews. Right, and, okay. Uh, Mark Guy was a columnist for a while, yep. and Daryl Broman came on board. So. We still had those kind of big names and things like that, but it was a difficult time. But over time, we managed to rebuild the relationships, um, launched extra time as a as a proper lift out, and and now have a great relationship with uh, with Panthers and and built that over over time. And um, yeah, I think we've got a a pretty good uh, rugby league reputation, obviously with y- yourself and a lot of uh, columnists and contributors doing it as well. But yeah, it is fun. Uh, I'd always wanted to be here when we won a won a premiership <laughs> and and cover the premiership. We did it in a weird way uh, with with the pandemic, but 
fantastic to be part of the, the coverage of the, the 2021 GF. Well, in, in 2015, Troy, the weekender gets new ownership. Uh, and what was managing that process like? Because, you know, whenever, whenever new people come on board, yeah. you, you expect a lot of change and things like that. But tell me how you sort of handled that as, as the editor at the time. Yes, uh, Catherine Garten, of course, our, our current uh, CEO and owner, uh, bought it in 2015. The whispers were around, I guess, that the weekender was looking at being uh, purchased. But a few weeks before it all happened, uh, I went to a meeting with Catherine um, and Charles, our, our former CEO. Yep. And um, and Catherine was pretty adamant that um, that she only wanted to sign on the dotted line if I was sticking around. Yep. So that was a good confidence boost in me. I knew I could manage the process knowing that it's not about, am I still going to be here or, or not be here? So that part was good. The next part was obviously managing... The next three to four weeks of, of a big change coming up, and it was a significant change. Um, so basically, it was spent not telling anyone and doing everything behind the scenes to prepare for this this switchover uh, to Western Sydney Publishing Group. It was actually a pretty seamless and pretty smooth transition, really. Um, the biggest thing you've got to deal with is telling everyone when it's happening at the time and, and how everyone's going to react and everyone thinks that things are going to be different. Mm. In the end, I think things were different uh, for the good and for the better, so... It was a, an interesting period, but yeah, it's um, it, there. She's our current owner. It's worked out really well, and a great relationship there, and allowed the paper to basically run with the people who know what they're doing best to continue doing it. And I think that's been what's critical. And our Christmas parties have certainly improved over <laughs> over that time as well, Troy. Now, now along the way, obviously, uh, the media landscape changes. You know, in the ensuing years, and uh, we fare well a lot of local competition mm. as well. The Penrith Press and, and the Star, uh, they, they, they were, or the Gazette as well, they were huge um, papers in town at the time. But um, unfortunately, over the years, those papers have sort of um, uh, have stopped and have, uh, have ended. And um, ha- what's your sort of view on that? And, you know, seeing that The Weekend has managed to thrive during that time and when we've seen other um, papers, you know, fall yep. by the wayside. Yeah, look, really interesting. Uh, first of all, from yeah, because I guess at the start of when I was editing the paper, the competition was still a, a really that was the biggest thing. You know, uh, we were the number three paper in town. There were times when the weekender was really just happy to survive. Um, the Penrith Press was the clear number one. Penrith Star was second, and, and we were third. We slowly started to make ground over those first few years, mainly because we decided no, we are going to um, be a real, real you know, real news newspaper. Yep. We we did the better league coverage. We Came up with a whole new bunch of ideas and things like that. So we started to make ground. I can remember I used to drive to Panthers um, every Wednesday night at about nine o'clock because that was the first drop off of the Penrith Press. So the first uh, bundle of the Penrith Press would arrive for the next day's edition. And obviously we were up against them specifically on this day. And I, I had to get down there to see what they put on the front page right. to see what we missed it. And, you know, did we miss anything? What did they run? Because that was still such a critical time at that point, where these days, obviously, we're pretty much the only ones running anything. So um, that that didn't matter as much in the end. But, uh, but yeah, that was that was really critical. The competition was was pretty crazy, particularly with us in the press. There was mm. a there was a definite competition there. Um, it was like a rivalry sort of thing. Like there's definitely a rivalry. Us, I remember their journos, um, Brad, and our journos. Brad Earl, who I think is still around at, at News Corp, he was running the the paper at the time and. We, we had to, uh, I've always wondered, and I'd love to talk to people at News Corp about this. Yeah. I always felt that News Corp had the power to, to kill us off if they wanted to. Right. You know, like at the end of the day, we were running 
uh, with a with an independent sales team, an independent news team, without the resources of News Corp. News Corp could have, if they really wanted to, brought 10 sales reps into that office in Penrith, or they yeah. could have flooded it with journos and covered absolutely everything and, and all of that sort of stuff. But they, they never really did. And in fact, if, if nothing else, they went the other way and they'd start to decentralize, uh, sorry, they start to centralize content. And, and that's the minute that they moved to Parramatta for most of their stuff, it was done, you know, yeah. and even from a sales perspective, I know you can say you can centralize sales. No one really knows, you know, all that sort of stuff, but you need the ability of a client to go, I can literally ring a local office and I can talk to them and I can book an ad and, and all of this sort of stuff. So yeah, the, the Penrith star uh, went first. Uh, it became the Penrith Gazette for a while. Yeah, and, yeah, and then had it a few went name changes. Yep. The Penrith Press held on all the way through to the pandemic, and then I think the uh, the pandemic was an opportunity um, to sort of say, well, let's pause printing, and then they just never, never Remember, came you, back. It was getting thinner and thinner as, yes. uh, as the months went on and the weeks went on. Which is the traditional way you kind of tell how a newspaper is doing. Yeah. If, if it was 100 pages one week and it's 50 the next, or you know that um, something's not quite right. Um, but it, for them... And you know, I'm quite happy to say this. It is totally on them. It's on their. It's it's totally on them. It's not about oh, the audience changed and wanted digital. Well, that's not true because th- that audience, if they wanted that content, wouldn't. It's behind a paywall on the Daily Telegraph. So I don't think any of them were saying yes, we want to do it digitally and we want to pay thirty bucks a month to do it. That wasn't the case at yeah. all. They, they did it to themselves. They pulled journos out of Penrith. They pulled sales reps out of Penrith. They tried to do it all out of Parramatta, um, and it just didn't work. And even now, they run a digital presence with where half the Things aren't actually about Penrith, and mm. and I guess I'm, uh, I'm not here just to bash News Corp or, or whatever else. In fact, I'm a proud News Corp subscriber. I've got no, you know, no issues, yeah, sure. uh, no issues with that. I think there's some great people there, but I think that um, they will, they will probably tell the story that the audience changed. I think they actually changed, and um, and we, we we emerge as a success story. If you went back 20 years, 30 years, and said the Weekender is the one of the three here that's going to survive. You would have been put in a straitjacket somewhere. Um, but here we are, and we are the lone survivor. And all due respect to our friends, of course, at the Nepean News, um, but they kind of run a different different game than us. But, um, yeah, we're still here and powering along. Well, well thanks to you, Troy. I think you're – I will, you know, blow smoke up your ass this time, <laughs> but I think you're a big part of – of the weekender and keeping it alive during you know some rough uh, some rough periods, but um, I don't think it would be thriving uh, without you. But uh, obviously, in the mix of all of this, uh, Troy, you uh, you also work extensively in radio, and yep. uh, I know you you you've been on air on Two UE and and Two GB over the years. Even Nova, you you dabbled in there, did a bit of stuff with them. But um, yeah. tell me about your stint at Two UE. Um, I know there was a pretty um, pretty tough night during uh, in 2014 that mm-hmm. sort of really sort of was a very memorable experience uh, for you in your radio career. Yeah, so I was doing um, just some weekend uh, fill-in shifts on news, news and sport, mainly sport, uh, which I do now at uh, 2GB still. Uh, so, you know, you read your 90 seconds of sport and whatever else, and um, good fun, really enjoyed doing it. But I, I said to Clinton Maynard, who was the, the program director at the time, I said, I really want to do programs. You know, I've grown up listening to programs, yep. and programs is what I want to do. So at the time, he was like, look, I, I, and this is the thing, 2UE at that point had lost its number one rating some time ago uh, when Alan Jones and Ray Hadley left. So 2UE was at a period where it was right for the picking as far as you know having an opportunity there. And so Clinton said, well, look, I've got some, some shifts coming up, uh, midnight to dawn. Um, you know, do you want to do those? And um, I said, absolutely, I do. In fact, first of all, I did a Christmas Day shift. I think Christmas Day 2013 was yep. my, my first shift, and um, I would... 
no one has prepared more for one shift, a single <laughs> shift. I think that I was in there pre-recording things and getting things, you know, getting guests. You know, and the everything. classic nervous sort of first first shift on air, and um, knew that friends and my wife would be listening, and you know that that I remember a guy called in probably two minutes into the show, and the fact that I got a call, I was like, this is this is all good. It's all going to be okay. Yeah. But yeah, I did the mid to dawn for a period, so midnight to five a.m. And this is a crazy time to be in talk radio because. There are a lot of listeners, and those listeners are from a whole diverse range of people. You've got truck drivers out there working, shift workers out there working. You've got you know people working in restaurants just heading home. You've got um, nurses just starting their day. You've got people who can't sleep. Yeah. You've got people. You've got all of these different people who are listening. Um, definitely some crazy callers at that time of night <laughs> as well. But I, I just tried to present it as if I was presenting it at any other time during the day, and and I'd use. Once again, managing to cross things over, I'd use a lot of my weekender contacts um, to appear on <laughs> on the show, so to do different interviews and, and whatnot. Um, but yeah, that night in 2014 that you're referring to is the Sydney Siege. So I remember, you know, obviously this had started to unfold in the morning yeah. there at the Limp we were Cafe. At the, we were in the office at the time. We were in the it, office, yeah. and so during this time, I was doing mid to dawns and still at the <gasps> weekender. So the point was that I, I said to our owners at the time, uh, look, I, I want to do this. Uh, the weekender won't suffer. Yeah, I'll, I'll make it happen somehow. <laughs> I, somehow I did for this two or three week period. And I remember Clinton called me about midday, and he goes, "You're obviously aware of what's happening." And I'm like, "Yeah, this call is going to be. Hey, we're we're taking you off the air tonight. Yeah, we're because, getting the big guns you know, in. We're get the big guns <laughs> in." And Clinton said, "Look, we got a feeling it, it's probably still going to be going. Um, anyway, we'll see how you go." And uh, it basically, was look, you're going to do this, and you're going to cover it. And and as it happened. It all ended at about two in the morning, uh, the following morning. So I was on air as it happened. Um, so you're watching this, watching, watching it the on the, all on the monitor. monitors. Yep. Uh, we got a reporter there. We had a reporter there, and I was just commentating. I've still got the audio from it, um, commentating it as it's happening, and and it gives you you know respect for. And journos get battered from pillar to post on TV and radio and all this sort of stuff. But yeah. it, it, it definitely gave me that newfound respect for that live coverage of a tragedy like that because you were watching things and you're like, who is this? Is this person a hostage? Is this person a gunman who's running away? Like, you know, remember yeah, people yeah. were running from the from the scene and whatnot. And um, yeah, it was just a, a crazy, crazy morning uh, full of adrenaline. Um, but you are, in a sense, you're on your own just there in that studio and whatever you're saying is, is what everyone's listening to. Um, I remember I decided the best thing to do was to reset the day. So when I came on at midnight, I basically spent the first hour um, just just going back through the day. Okay, Tony Abbott addressed the nation at midday, here's what he said, and, and you know all, all of that sort of stuff. So I could reset for everyone and then cover from there. Um, and then I remember... We, the Parks Elvis Festival was coming up. Right. So we got to about 2 o'clock. And don't forget, this has been going since 8 in the morning. Yeah, There's so you've got a, other content going on. I well. had other a full show planned. Yeah, right. It's getting towards 2 o'clock, and I'm like, oh, dude, like, we're just repeating the same things. Like, nothing is really changing. So I make this grand announcement. Well, after the 2 o'clock news, um, we're going to have our Elvis hour. <laughs> Covering the, uh, you know, we're going to talk to an Elvis impersonator and at two a.m. Um, two a.m. and yeah. this is all going to be good. And this Elvis impersonator's got up, ready for his interview. <laughs> and then, as we go to the news at two o'clock, things start um, really unfolding, and, and the police move into the Link Cafe. And uh, so, obviously, we never did the Elvis um, impersonator in that show, at least. And um, yeah, then then it was literally just covering and trying to figure out. Okay, I might go up to, I might take the Channel Nine coverage here. Mm. I might take the. The 10 coverage here. And the, when you do that, when people do that in radio, it's always tricky because you don't know, like, is Carl Stefanovic going to come over the top here of, you yeah, know, they don't, yeah. you know, you, you hope, oh, let's just watch it without it. So 
you do a quick credit there and credit this that you're taking this and then go to our reporter and whatnot. But yeah, definitely a memorable um, time to be on the air. And yeah, over the next couple of years, I did a lot of those shifts at, um, at 2UE, uh, some weekend shifts and some night shifts filling in for different people and um, love it. Absolutely love doing uh, doing talk radio and never know, might do it again one day. And, and even now, Troy, I know you still still dabble in in radio and in particular with, with 2GB, you work over yep. there on some weekends and you're doing the sport and that sort of thing. So can you sort of tell me a bit about how that sort of plays out? You, you do your weekend shifts during the week yep. and then, you know, you, you, you're always working, it seems to be. Yeah, well, um, I, I wanted to keep my foot in the door. It was pretty clear that um, like Clinton Maynard didn't. He came across to to two GB in the whole two GB buys two UE thing, and that's yep. a whole other other story. But um, he came across, uh, but it was pretty clear that he wasn't going to be the program director. And basically, I was at ground zero again. So I, I had felt at the time that this is going really well. You never know, I might be able to pick up something permanent. Yeah. And at that stage, I'm only a couple of years into the weekender role. I'm, I'm in the mindset of, oh, well, you need to put a couple of years in there and maybe radio is the next thing. It was pretty clear that, okay, when you go to 2GB, if I, you know, I rang up 2GB and I said, where do I, where do I fit in here? I've been doing casual shifts and they basically said, you don't. Um, so yeah. that's, that's fine. I mean, you know, you've got Alan Jones, Ray Hadley, uh, Chris Smith, John Stanley, you've got a pretty strong lineup. So, you know, <laughs> there's probably nowhere I'm fitting in there. Um, the newsroom obviously runs a bit separately and a bit independently of programs, so I, I put a call in there to uh, to Aaron Ma, who was the news director at the time, and um, I said, look, I'd, I'd still love to do shifts. Clinton will, will vouch for me if um, if you like, and uh, he did, and, and since then, basically, yeah, I've, whenever they've needed me, I've, um, I try and do you know, one weekend a month or yep. sometimes two weekends a month, just filling in, doing sport normally when someone's sick or injured, <laughs> and um, yeah, just keeps me in tune with the, the station, how it works, um, all that sort of thing, so yeah, I and enjoy you, doing you've that. You've even been on air with the, with the continuous call team and that sort yeah, of thing, yeah, doing, doing different with them. sports crosses with the two Murrays and all those guys, so yeah, it's a lot of fun, um, I enjoy doing it, um, and it's just, yeah, it's just a bit of... Something a bit different to do as well. Now, obviously, in, in our job, um, you know, we, we, it does come with a uh, with a lot of criticism. I mean, you know, journalists, we, we, we work very hard, but we do yeah. also cop it a fair bit. And uh, you're no stranger to that as well, Troy. Um, particularly recently in the election, I mean, um, you know, you'd put your opinion pieces out uh, yep. online and on Facebook and um, you'd get you get a few trolls there that uh, obviously disagree with you or, or think that you're biased and things like that. Um, you certainly do cop it. And, and one thing I know about you, it's sort of an order for ducks back for you. I mean, I don't know how you do it. You, you're <laughs> one of the toughest, toughest skin person I, I know out there. But um, can you sort of take me into your mind and, and when, when you see some, some criticism out there or when, when people are, are criticising your job or your opinion, um, how do you sort of deal with that? Yeah, well, as you say, it is water for ducks back to me. You'd be able to vouch for that. Um, the personal stuff, the trolls, the little online bullies, all that sort of stuff, the comments that people make, literally does not phase me or bother me in the slightest. And I'm not, I would never criticise someone who it does bother. I know that there's obviously people out there and, and no question that cyberbullying is a, a huge issue that we still need to do more on and the social media companies need to do a lot more on. Mm. But for me, it just doesn't, it doesn't impact me, it doesn't affect me. Um, in fact, the ones I would say that actually do make me go, oh, stop and think, are the, are the coherent ones, are the ones that, you know, someone's actually took the time to either email, mainly it's email, Facebook tends <laughs> to be not, not for that, but even on Facebook, if I read a comment and I go, you know, that person makes a lot of sense, I didn't think about that side of it, or, oh, yeah, okay, that's a, that's a fair rebuttal or, or whatever else, they're the ones that make me think, the other ones, not at all. Um, where it probably bothers me is the paper itself um, being criticised or the newsroom itself or whatever else, because just like any industry, 
that we might criticize. You might criticize a restaurant or a cafe or, sure. or whatever else. Most of that criticism <clears throat> comes from the outside of people who have no idea how the media works yeah. and how the business of the media works and how the behind the scenes of exactly why something happened, why there's four liberal stories and only two Labour stories. They don't know that. They, they yeah. you know, And I kind of can't blame people for that because I don't know how a, a delivery service works, but I'll still blame them if my you know, <laughs> Uber Eats is 20 minutes late. Yeah. But, you know, and I don't appreciate the behind the scenes of it. But, yeah, people, media is obviously a lot more public and they just don't quite grasp how it works behind the scenes and that results in some pretty harsh criticism when in reality... Just like the vast majority of truck drivers are good drivers, the vast majority of journalists are good people who do the right things, and and particularly at the weekend as well, we you know who operate behind all of the policies and all of the the right methods that we're supposed to do things in. Um, unfortunately, the criticism is never going to go out. Criticism of the press has always has existed forever, um, you know, but um, but I think these days it just takes a a bit of a ferocious turn with social media and and whatnot, but let me tell you, um, you're better off having us than not having us because um, if 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 Places like the Weekender don't exist, or news sites don't exist, or newspapers don't exist. As much as everyone wants to criticise News Corp, who run so much content across things, if they don't exist, then all you're left with is PR people um, mm. and, and businesses that are controlling their own message. And if you think that is a good thing, uh, let me tell you, it's not because you know you need people who are going to question things. You need people who are going to um, bring things up that you know this isn't this isn't right let's let's question this and it's it's harder than ever because yes companies hire pr people to spin the message and and that's that's a you know that's another thing people don't see they don't see that hey we want an answer on this and people literally are putting up roadblocks so you don't get an answer on this yeah. you know it's uh it, it's a really difficult thing um, and people don't appreciate that. They just they just comment on the end result but um but look you know we're here to be criticized and as far as my stuff goes if I always look at it that if I'm putting out an opinion, everyone has a right to disagree with that. Um, even if sometimes they're, they're, they're accusing me of something, of doing something that they are doing in their very criticism. Mm. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're saying you are biased, generally coming from someone who is from a position of bias. But anyway, it, it is what it is. <laughs> and people should always click on the story and read <laughs> the, the full the full story or the full opinion piece before well, just, yes. you know, oh, I, uh, I can tell it. you right now that um, <laughs> I reckon the vast majority of comments on... And look, this isn't a weekender problem. This is a, you know, you can go on any uh, yes. Facebook page, Panthers, you know, NRL, whatever else. People just not reading the the context of things and just deciding they're going to comment on it is um yeah it's ridiculous now just have, before we before we wrap up i do have to ask one question obviously you know we've spoken a lot about about what you do and how many jobs you sort of juggle at the one time obviously yeah. you know you're working the weekend of five days a week you know here in the early mornings you finish late and then obviously some weekends you're working at 2gb and and doing their, their sport coverage and things like that but you also last year welcomed a baby daughter into the world yes. ed and uh you know there's a lot of juggling with that as well yep. you're juggling a baby and, and a, a newborn as well being up all hours of the night how do you function troy how do you, <laughs> how do you manage to, to to juggle a baby radio the newspaper and, and everything else that comes with that yeah look and i guess this isn't for everyone this i wouldn't say this is the the way everyone can approach it because everyone's jobs will be different but for me i've always merged and, and i'm sure that there would be some expert out there who would tell you this is the worst thing you could do i've always merged the personal and the professional right so so my calendar is for both you know my the calendar in my phone says that i've got this on at you know eight o'clock dinner with people at eight o'clock tonight but it's also got that i've got a meeting at two o'clock this afternoon 
Um, what's that allowed? What that has allowed me to do because I do get here early or I'm here late or whatever else is that if I need to do something during the day, I can I can quickly do it or, or whatever else. Um, so merging the two things and just making it all one big life in, in, in one big bucket has probably made things a lot easier. Um, you know, it means that I can, okay, I've got an hour here at 11 o'clock at night that I can punch out some stuff mm. that, that, that I can do for work. So being able to merge those two things has actually made it work for me. I, I, I couldn't go down the path that I'm sure a psychologist out there would tell me to do, which <laughs> is, you know what, when you leave that office, it needs to shut down and, um, you know, then do this family time here and work time here. You know, it just doesn't work like that. I'm fortunate enough that I've been here such a long time that, that I have a lot of flexibility from from our owner, Catherine, from the perspective of um, there's an appreciation there that, okay, yeah, Troy's writing a story at you know midnight, so yeah. um, if he needs to, to look after Edie at 4.30 in the afternoon, <laughs> that's okay as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it, it helps that, I guess, that, yeah, that I've been here a long time and that I kind of, I can set things up to operate knowing how they operate because I, you know I'm not you know I'm, I'm learning new things every day of course because we're covering new things every day but uh, we've set up a lot of systems over the years that make things quicker we used to put the paper to print at midnight on Wednesday nights you know now it'd be very rare that it's still going to print after five yeah. o'clock and it's just all about systems and putting things in place but yeah as far as juggling it is concerned well I've never been a big sleeper anyway <laughs> uh, four to five hours a night will do me um, and yeah it's just about combining everything works for me and I guess it also helps that that your wife Stacy it was also in, in the industry as well so yep. she sort of knows what the journalism game is like and- 100% yeah there's a there's an understanding there that yes these calls happen at eight o'clock at night or <laughs> yeah. stories happen at midnight and, and whatever else and just on that as well like you know one of my passions is obviously the footy, but the footy has become my work. So it's all about, as I said, it's all <laughs> yeah. about everything's in the one bucket. And and there's very few things I almost do from a personal perspective that don't somehow link into to work in, in, in one way or another. So, you know, you know, I'm a big country music fan. Oh, let's do a country music <laughs> column. Like suddenly like <laughs> yeah. we'll make things, I, I make things sort of combine. And, and that that's what keeps my passion and energy up as well, because yeah. I'm like, well, now I am literally doing something I love doing uh, because I'm combining combining them all together absolutely now Troy I know this is a question that uh, that you always finish on when you do the <laughs> podcast with your usual guests and I know it's something you've been thinking about all morning before we recorded this but um, the question everyone wants to know Troy uh, how would you like to be remembered in Penrith I'm actually thinking about dumping this question because now I'm like <laughs> it is a really hard question to answer um, you know what I, I think at the end of the day from a few different perspectives I would like to be remembered as someone who gave um, a lot of young journalists their first gig um, because that is definitely the case and there's some journos out there now doing great things in, in metro media so I'd, I'd like to remember from that perspective but otherwise just someone who was very passionate about Penrith and about telling Penrith stories in the most positive light that we could and shining a light on the fact that living here is a great choice and, and something that you know you can really take a lot of enjoyment and fun out of and not a chore, which a lot of people I think over the years have looked at it as, you know, oh, I happen to live in I live in Penrith and I'm not proud of it. Uh, hopefully, some of the things I've done have made living in Penrith be a bit more um, a bit a bit happier and a bit more pride attached to it. So I'll go with that. Well, hopefully, Troy Penrith never loses you and and your <laughs> talents and everything you've done because um, yeah, I think it'll be a poorer place without you around. But um, thank you for joining us on oh. the uh, yeah, the maybe podcast you can, you can today. Host it permanently if you want to. <laughs> all, all good. Well, I hope you uh, enjoyed our chat, everyone. On the Record is produced by The Western Weekender. To hear future episodes with Troy at the helm, I'm sure, search Western Weekender wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you hit subscribe. Check out westernweekender.com.au and uh, we'll see you next time.
that's going inside as we speak. So what we're seeing, we're seeing cameras from obviously some distance from the uh, the actual scene of the Lynn Chocolate Cafe. Now, there has been footage of an, what, a, what I think is another hostage running from the scene with a uh, police escort. Uh, so that would be another person. Now, we're seeing now footage of... Um, look, I don't know if that's... Yeah, there is a person on that stretcher. Okay, so we're seeing uh, on Sky News footage of an injured person being taken in a stretcher, an ambulance stretcher. Uh, obviously being assisted by paramedics. So we've seen that. We've seen one other person be carried by police rescue. We're seeing the footage now on Channel 9 at the moment that heavily armed police stormed this cafe after 17 hours. And we saw hostages run free as a result. Now, just repeating, we do not know if all of the hostages are out. We do not know if all if there are any hostages that have been uh, seriously injured. And we certainly do not know the fate of the gunman, Man Monis. So this is just dramatic scenes, quite unbelievable in Sydney. It would appear that this hostage situation is now coming to its conclusion after 17 hours. We'll just bring back Channel 9. ...have moved into position. They've decided to storm the cafe in light of what had happened over the preceding minute or two, which was the fact that seven hostages came out and obviously there were things going on inside. It appears that they might have used a shotgun to blow the hinges off that big door. Then they've gone in and the police have confirmed to us they've used live ammunition, they've used gunfire. They've gone in with gunfire and then you can see the other tactical response officers throwing in uh, like stun, stun grenades. grenades. And you can hear them, they sound like gunfire but they're stun grenades and they are used to completely, totally and utterly disorientate the perpetrator and gonna, with the flashing lights and everything as flashing well. lights there's all sorts of thing going on and, and he wouldn't have known where he was but disturbingly since the storming of the lint cafe we've seen paramedics move in quite dramatically we've seen at least one possibly two people on a stretcher we've definitely Absolutely. seen one lady on a stretcher and it doesn't so that's channel nine uh continuing coverage here on 2ue4bc and our network stations but just repeating that we've seen a group of hostages run from the Lindt Cafe. Uh, we do not know the fate of the gunman, Man Monis. We just do not know that current situation. We obviously expect there will be confirmations from police shortly. Now we saw, as I mentioned, we saw uh, a group of hostages. Then we, saw, we also saw one man. We saw a woman being carried by police rescue. And we're just seeing that footage again. I did mention that to you of another hostage, it would appear, with a, a police escort running from the scene. So, um, look, we just don't know how many. We don't know how many were in there in the first place. We never had that number confirmed by police. We were saying it was around the 15 mark. But just repeating, there has been...